Well, we are down to the wire. We are in math, we are in Isaiah chapter 61. There's only 66 chapters total, and so we are literally in our last, what's, it's about eight weeks because, uh, we still have the, um, the, uh, Love Light Ministries coming on the 17th of July, 16th of July, and we have, um, the, uh, and Jesse will be preaching on the 30th of July. So that will be his normal time for preaching. So, but we're almost done. Sometime in the middle of August is when we'll be finished with the book of Isaiah. And, uh, but this one was a tough one for me. As I read it, the words are great, but it was tough for me to, to, to discern what was God wanted us to say, wanted me to say for you to hear. But go ahead and turn with me, not to Isaiah 61. Well, yeah, let's do Isaiah 61 first. We'll read that first. And then we'll look at this other passage. So Isaiah 61, there's only 11 verses. I want to go ahead and read all of them. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, There shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For the Lord love, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will, I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring to the Lord, that the Lord is blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The word of the Lord. Now, what is this about? Anybody? Sent me to the broken earth, 
Okay. Well, you can tell that you've gone through some formal training and that you've been taught by people who have that particular perspective. But that's one perspective of this. And I'm not, I'm not belittling that. I, 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 that was one of the things I was going to bring out was that if you look in John, in Luke chapter four, verses, I think it's 17 and 18 or 18 and 19, Jesus, after his temptation, the very first thing he does is he goes back to his own people, his own village to the town of Nazareth. And on the Sabbath, he sits down in the church or in the in the, in the, the synagogue and he is asked to take the, the seed of Moses in the synagogue. The Torah is placed before him. It is opened up to that part of the, of the scroll that needs to be read for that day. And it just happens to be Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. Jesus stops, as, as Jesse said, Jesus stops in verse 2 at the at the word uh, at the words the year of the lord's favor mm-hmm. he does not continue on there have been thousands of years literally of scholars trying to figure out why he didn't go on if he was quoting it why didn't he quote, continue quoting all the way to the end i mean it, may, it would make more sense to finish the thought wouldn't it one of the schools of thought as jesse has shared with us is that this is Jesus saying when he stopped at that point, this part of this prophecy has been fulfilled today in your hearing. I have come to fulfill it, but I am proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and there is still to come the day of vengeance of our God and a day when all who mourn will be comforted. So that's one school of thought. Another school of thought was that the prophet was actually speaking of himself. There's another school of thought who thinks that this was uh, about a person who was contemporary with the time of the exile, who then was part of the priesthood during the exile, and he was anointed by God to be a, I don't want to use the term mini-messiah, but a mini-messiah, if you will, to speak truth and comfort to the people who are coming back out of the exile. And quite honestly, we don't have anything other than what we find in Luke as any evidence that this is, uh, which is this? Or could it be a couple, three things? I mean, we just don't know. Now, the one thing we do know for sure, like Jesse already said to us, Jesus himself quoted this verse and said, it's about me. So we know, if nothing else, it's definitely about Jesus. Why did he stop in the middle of that verse? That's conjecture. We don't know. It could be that he read all the way through to the end, but when the Holy Spirit impressed Luke to actually write the gospel, he stopped at that point. We don't know. We have no way of definitively saying, this is what it is. We do know that these first two or three verses of Isaiah 61 are specifically talking about Jesus, the Messiah. We know that because Jesus himself said that. Now, I want to look at that at the end, these first two verses. I want to look at verses 4 through 11 
just in a cursory fashion, just to give you a sense of what is, what is being talked about. Because as I read this, the very first time when I started my, my, my preparation for this sermon, I was kind of like, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, 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 let's get to the stuff that really means anything. Come on, give me some meat to chew on. Because literally, what is this? Well, let's look at it. It says, verse 4, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Scholars are not sure if... Now remember also, we talked about this in the past, you know this, that the Bible was not originally written in chapters and verses, it was just written. And then for study purposes, scholars came up with this this uh, this division of chapters and divisions into verses so that it's easier to study and have, say everybody, okay, everybody turn to this page, okay? But, so chapter 61, verse 4, they're not sure, scholars are not sure, does it go with verse 3 and complete verse 3's thought? Or is it the beginning of verse 5 through 11? Or is it just a statement that's kind of in between these two sections? Because the verses 1 through 3 are a definite section of thought. Verses 5 through 11 are a definite section of thought. Verse 4 is just kind of like, what is this? Why is this here? So basically, if you take it just at its face value, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Well, as one scholar that I read said, they weren't in exile for generations. They were in exile for one generation. So this, in his mind, was not, it wasn't talking about coming back and rebuilding Jerusalem. Because some scholars say, well, this is just talking about Ezra and Nehemiah coming back and rebuilding Jerusalem after the exile. But this one scholar said, well, it's talking about generations. So what in the world could this be? His argument was that this is talking about, and talking about with what Jesse said, that verse 2 cut in half, the second half of it and verse 3 are about the second coming of Christ. Okay? And so if you think about it that way, second chapter, chapter 61 verse 2 at the second half and verse 3, talking about that's the second coming of Christ, then it makes sense to say at that time, when the second coming of Christ happens, they shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair and ruin cities, the devastations of many generations. Think about this. Now, I'm not saying that this is what this is saying specifically, but just for discussion's sake, think about this. If verse 4 could possibly be talking about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, either just prior to or at the time, of the Messiah's return. It's, it's been generations for sure. And it's been devastation and despair and ru- ancient ruins. It's just one thought. We really don't know because we're not given anything specific in scripture. And nothing specific from the outside. This is just different thoughts. But the idea is as you're reading through this. Trying to understand what was the prophet initially trying to say to the people. Something was being said to these people about something coming in the future where they, whoever they are, we would assume he was talking to the people of God. They are going to restore what was ruined. They are going to see a restoration and a repair 
of what was ruined and devastated and sat that way for generations. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry? Uh, very possibly. Talking about the day of salvation. Okay. And talking about when Jesus comes back, you mean? Okay. I can see that. Now, verses 5, 6, and 7. Talking about strangers and foreigners serving the people of God. Okay? It says, they're going to tend your flocks, they're going to be your plowmen, they're going to be your vine dressers, you shall be called the priests of the Lord, they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God, you shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there'll be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they'll be rejoice. You should, they shall rejoice. They shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. And again, these are thoughts of scholars who have studied this, but there's nothing definitive about what this is saying. But think about this. The people of, of Israel are direct descendants, biological descendants of Abraham. What did God say to Abraham at the time that God made a covenant with Abraham? He will bless all nations. That all people will be brought to the one God through the family of Abraham. Okay? One scholar that I read said, when you think about the Jews in modern society... What do you think about? You either think about the Holocaust or you think about the rich diamond merchants in New York City. And he said, typically that's what you think about when you think about the Jews. Not talking about from a religious perspective, just from, from the world's perspective. So either they are people who were almost destroyed and devastated and rose up out of that and are now very wealthy and powerful and influential in our world. But that's not what God initially wanted for the Jews. Initially for the Jews, their purpose, their whole purpose in the Abrahamic covenant was they would bring people to God. It would be through them that the blessings of God would pour out on all nations. Think about the way God structured through the Mosaic law, the way God structured the, the community of Israel. Everyone got their own land, except for one family, the Levites. Why did the Levites not have their own land? Excuse me, say that again. God was their inheritance. And so God said to the Levites, you're not getting an inheritance of land, you're, I'm your inheritance, and I will make sure of all of your brothers and sisters' provisions, you will be provided for. Your job is to lead all of your brothers and sisters to my throne. Your job is to officiate at the worship services. Your job is to manage the sacrificial system. Your job is to turn the hearts of the people to me. And because you are being so focused on that, I'm going to... Make sure that you're provided for. Now, if you then can take, I'm just, I'm, I'm, this is not my thoughts. I have to give you these are these are thoughts of people that I've read. But if you think about that, 
And then give that kind of, that's the way God related with the Jewish people back then. And then think about what God originally wanted the Jewish people to be on this earth was the priests who led people to the, to the real God. If you read these words in verses 5 through 7, and with that understanding, it is very possible that during the time of the second coming, that the Jewish people are going to be received, or or even we could even go so far as to say, and this is something that I, I'm not comfortable doing, but it is one of the scholars, we can go so far as to say the people of God, not the Jews necessarily, but the people of God, are going to be raised up as priests who bring the hearts of the people to the Father, and as a result, they're going to be served, if you will, by the rest of the world. There's a little bit of an arrogance there, and I don't want it to sound that way in any way, in any way, shape, or form. The idea being that the people of God have a specific role, and that's to bring people to the throne, to point people to God. And they don't have to worry about how they're going to live on a day-to-day basis, because God will provide for them. That goes right back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. You don't need to worry about what's, where your next meal is going to come from, and you don't need to worry, know where your shelter is coming from. Your Heavenly Father is perfectly capable of providing all of that for you. He knows what you need, and He will take care of you. Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. They don't have to worry. In the same way, you don't have to worry. Okay? So, that being the case, if that's what's being said here, what the prophet is saying to these people is, when the time of Messiah comes, and it could be, as Jesse said, that this first three or four verses is split. The first advent, the first coming of Christ, the second advent, the second coming of Christ. And then when the Messiah comes, and we could look at the second coming of Christ, that this part of it's going to happen, the people of God are going to be leading the rest of the world to God, and God is going to make sure that they get taken care of. And this this idea where it says, instead of shame, you get a double portion... Think about where the people that are hearing this for the first time, when Isaiah is speaking to these people who are in exile, they are in shame. They have lost everything. They have been devastated because of their disobedience and because of their unwillingness to submit to God and and trust God fully. And God says, I am not casting you out forever. There is going to come a time when the time of Messiah comes where you will be restored to the rightful place as long as you're in right relationship with me, and you will no longer carry shame, but you will receive a double portion of blessing from me. Now, it goes on talking about other things, um, about headdresses and beautiful adornment and gardens sprouting up. Um, and if you go to verse 3, it talks about uh, the, the, the whoever this Messiah is, he's going to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, um, oil of gladness instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of faint spirit. And there's this dichotomy of, of, of images here. Okay, there's this, there's this person, imagine in their culture, they're mourning and grieving and, 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 and wailing over their situation and over their sin. So they tear their clothes, they put on sackcloth and ashes, and they don't take care of themselves. Okay, they, they, they just, they're just horrible. That's this one image. But then it says when the Messiah comes, he's going to lift you up out of that. He's going to give you the, 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 uh, an outward appearance of praiseworthiness. He's going, to, he's going to make you look beautiful. And it's all going to point to God. It's all going to point to God. And so that's what this is talking about. There's a lot of people that have used this verse 3. His beauty for ashes, beauty for ashes. 
That's a specific promise to a specific people. But the principle can probably be applied anytime you feel God is saying to you, you may feel like you're in the midst of despair, and you may feel like you're in the midst of burn down everything, and you just need to trust me because I can raise you up out of that, out of that place of darkness, out of that place of ash, out of that place of despondency. I can, I can, I can set you up in a situation where you are beautiful and glorious, and, you, and when people see you, they give praise to my Father. So I can see where that principle can be there. But as it's written, this is a specific promise to specific people from the specific Messiah. Okay, so we've broken apart some of these things. Let's, just, let's go back now to this first couple of verses. Because that's where I really wanted to focus the last few minutes of our, of our time together. Verse 1, and this is kind of an aside, but it's kind of a fun thing. Verse 1, some scholars say, is a very clear and definitive proof that there is a triune God. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Well, first of all, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Lord God is Yahweh. And who is me? The Messiah. So if we say Jesus is the Messiah, and that's what we truly believe, then, and then Jesus is speaking here, and he, we know in Luke chapter 4 that he said that this was him, the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit from the Father is on Jesus. And so there's, a, there's an image there, out of scripture, about our theology about a triune God. Now, it doesn't specifically say that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 can be used to defend our theological statement that there is a triune God. <clears throat> Beyond that though, God has specifically anointed this Messiah for some specific tasks. The first one is to bring good news to the poor. Second one, God has sent the Messiah to bind up the brokenhearted. Third, proclaim liberty to the captives. Four, opening the prison of those who are bound. And five, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Six, the day of vengeance of our God. Seven, the comfort of all who mourn. And that's it. Because then it goes into how he's going to treat those who are mourning. So there are seven specific tasks that the Messiah is going to do. Good news, we know, is the, is the gospel. It is speaking the good news of God to the poor. Is that talking about financially poor? Is that talking about people who are downtrodden? Is that, or, or poor in spirit? And, and there is, there's too much left unsaid to be definitive about what this is talking about. So again, it's a matter of God, what is it that, uh, what is it that, that, that you were specifically saying? Well, for me, and this is something that I've chewed on and have been chewing on for months, is, my job as a minister in the Church of the Nazarene 
is to bring the good news. And the Church of the Nazarene's history has been to bring the good news to the poor in our world. It's not to reach those who are wealthy and doing well. It is to reach those who are down and out. If you go back to the very beginning, and I don't want to get into sermons that I'm going to be preaching in a couple of coming weeks, but just to give you a taste, if you go to the very beginning of the history of the Church of the Nazarene, Phineas F. Brzee, who was the founding pastor of the Church of the Nazarene, which then became the denomination known as the Church of the Nazarene, his calling was to preach the gospel and to minister to the lives of the people who were trapped as inner city poor in Los Angeles. That was his calling. And the Church of the Nazarene's calling has been throughout the last century to minister in a blue-collar way to the poor. If you look, and again, I don't want to get too much into our into what I'm going to be talking about in the coming days, but one of the quotes of Phineas F. Brzee, or early leaders, I think it was Phineas F. Brzee, was, we don't want to have beautiful, glorious, stained-glass buildings so that the poor people can't come into them and feel comfortable. We just want to have a place that takes us, gives us some shelter from the sun and from the heat so that we can bring the poor in and they can feel at peace and at home here. This should be a place where they feel safe, where they feel comfortable, where they can come to meet with God and not feel like they're out of place or unacceptable. Those were the heart, that was the heart and mindset of the founding pastor of the Church of the Nazarene. And unfortunately, and I'm not saying this church, I'm talking about other churches. There are other churches in our denomination where a poor person would not feel good walking in the door for fear that they would be rejected because they smelled bad or their clothes were dirty or they had stained up shoes. That's one of the key reasons, if you go to our website, why I have a picture of a person wearing ragged car hearts saying, you can wear anything you want to wear as long as you don't come naked. That's what our website says. If you want to see it, you can go look at it. But the idea being, we don't care what people dress like. We don't care how they present themselves. We just want them to be safe and comfortable in our church. And I think that for me has just rung true as I was reading and meditating on this. The good news needs to be preached to the people who don't feel safe coming into the church. Who are downtrodden who are beat up, who feel rejected by society. In addition to that, he is to bind up the brokenhearted. Think about that. What does it mean to be brokenhearted? Imagine a one or two year old child and something that is trivial for us happens in their life And it breaks their little heart. And they're just weeping and crying and just... (gasps) And what do we do as the mamas or the daddies or the grandmas or the grandpas or the aunties? We pick them up and we just hold them. And we help to bring back together the brokenness that's in their heart. If their little heart is broken, we want it to be mended. So we do all that we can to kiss away the hurt. Now, if you translate that into how do the people of God do that for the people of their community, who in your life is broken hearted? Who in your life 
is struggling with just the day-to-day existence and they feel like everything is just falling apart for them. And I could name names, but it would be totally inappropriate since we're recording this for everyone to listen to. But if you have a question about who that this this congregation contacts on a regular basis that is brokenhearted right now, come up to me after the service and I'll give you the name so you can go. If If you haven't already been aware of it, you can go and talk with them. And do whatever God would have you to do to help bind up their brokenheartedness. But there are people affiliated with this church in some form or fashion that are brokenhearted right now and that need the love of Christ to come alongside them to bind that brokenness. The Messiah was sent by the Spirit of God and in the power of the Spirit to proclaim liberty to the captives and an opening of prison to the bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All three of those statements, they have various nuances, but all three of those statements are referring directly back to what happens on the day of atonement in the, in the, in the, in the, in the culture of the Jews. On the day of atonement, the, the shafar is blown and everything is made right. It's like the books are cleaned. But on the 50th year, on the Day of Atonement, the Shafar is blown, and it's known as the Year of Jubilee. And what that means is, if land was sold, it goes back to the original people. If a person was sold into servanthood because of paying a debt, they are released and sent for, set free. All loans are forgiven. All debts are forgiven. God ordered it for the people of Israel. This is how it happens on the first day of the year of atonement, I mean the year of jubilee, when the shofar is blown, all of those contracts are negated and everything goes back to the way it was supposed to be. And what we see here is the job of the Messiah is to proclaim it, to proclaim it, and to open it. And there's this sense of the Messiah is going to make everything go back to the way it's supposed to have been. Going to right all the wrongs. Going to forgive all of the debts. Think about it in, in, the, in, the, in the mindset of your own sin. You cannot make it right between you and God. You cannot atone for your own sins. But the Messiah can. It's called, in, in our theology, we call it justification made just as if you had never sinned. It's what Elsie wrote on here on the, on this, on the sand this morning, grace. The grace of God. And then finally, getting to these other two, the vengeance of our God and the comfort of those who mourn. If we look at, as Jesse said, if we look at this idea that this, these two are coming when Jesus' second coming comes, Jesus has come to say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one can come to the Father but by me. There's all this wooing and drawing to the Father through Jesus. But when the second coming comes, and especially according to this theory, this idea of the second half of verse 2, it's not going to be for the wooing and drawing of the nations. It's going to be to bring about the declaration of the vengeance of the Lord. It is time for you to to pay up. It is time for you to to pay the piper, if you will. And so Jesus is going to come at that time and there's going to be judgment. And at that time, the people who have been struggling and mourning will be comforted 
But the rest of the people, the doors will be shut. And the time will come when there is no longer opportunity for them to, to, to try and come into right relationship with Jesus. And I don't, I can't even give you all of the, what that would be at this point. But these are the, these are the acts that are, that are of the, of the Messiah. Things that, that God is specifically tasking the Messiah with doing. Empowering the Messiah through the Spirit of God. And as the people of God, and this is to wrap this all up. As the people of God, if we say, well, how does this apply to my life, God? How does chapter 61 of Isaiah apply to me? What I would say, is put yourself in the idea that you are a priest before the people of this community. And your role is to bring these people to the Lord God. To point them to Jesus, but also to get over there and come alongside them and bring them to Jesus if necessary. And whatever that means, whatever that means, recognize you don't have to worry about your own self, your own life, your own stuff. You have to focus on what does God want from me as a servant of the Most High God for this day and for this week so that that person can come to know Him. That's your role. If you're focused on, but I've got to make plans for the future and I've got to build up my, my, my retirement account and I've got to get this taken care of and I've got this then the enemy is keeping you distracted from what your real purpose is. Now, does that mean you're not supposed to do your garden or you're not supposed to build the cabin or you're not supposed to repair the vehicle or you're not supposed... No. But if you allow those things to consume your day-to-day and you're never focusing on your role as a priest, then the enemy's got you. That's it. The enemy's got you. The, we, we said it last week um, during the sermon. Um, it was said during our prayer time, and I say it again. Do not let the enemy get you distracted from doing that which you're called to do. Each one of us have a vocation from God. Each one of us are called to be a royal priesthood, to be part of that group of people of God who draws the rest of the world to God. And if you have been, you've been, if you've allowed the enemy of your soul to get you distracted on all of this other stuff, Instead of the primary calling that's on your life. And you're living defeated at this point. And the enemy doesn't even have to fight with you anymore. Because he's got you so distracted. You're just focused on you. We need to reach out. We need these pews to be full on Sunday. Or we need to stop meeting here and go meet where the people are. And that's more of my sermons for the coming weeks. But the reality is folks. If all we're doing is come together for the 10 of us or 15 or 20 of us on a Sunday morning and then we go back to our lives, why are we doing it? If that's all this is about, you can get just about as much out of it as you can just sitting around your TV, watching TV preacher and joining hands together and praying. Why are we here? What is the reason for this building and these this congregation being here in Two Rivers? Why? And that's what we're going to be focusing on in the coming days. Let's pray.